And back with another edition of the Insurance and Injury Law Show. The number anytime, as you know, one 990 Email is help at We will refer to that email address several times during the show throughout the hour. As uh, James Fireman is doing all the heavy lifting here today, no savants, James is taking us through the hour. Information, emails, questions all coming through. We always like to start uh, every show James, with the week that was, some things that have happened either in the recent past on your desk or stuff you're currently working on. So I know you got a couple happening. So uh, what's going on, pal? I had an interesting mediation last week. It's a case I've had for a while. And it was a slip and fall happened at a university. Um, that part isn't really what I need to express here. Mm-hmm. The important part is the communication with your client um, and making sure as a lawyer, it's really important that my client knows what's going on and is involved and invested in the case. And this was a perfect example of why that is so important and why we take such great lengths to make sure that our clients aren't just passengers, um, that they're you know, involved and invested in their claims. So what happened in this particular case is, you know, my lady, uh, my client had, you know, some very minor um, issues before she had this accident, but nothing um, that was particularly relevant. You know, Mm -hmm. had a complaint of a headache, you know, maybe three years before, um, a, you know, a neck pain a couple years before. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, was probably more healthy than most when we're taking a look at several years before. Except what had happened is we'd gotten records um, just maybe a couple weeks before mediation. And in the records, there was a note from one doctor that I hadn't seen before, and it had indicated that my client had had nerve block injections because of lower back pain. Now, the the issue she was suffering from wasn't really a lower back issue, so it wouldn't have been you know something that would have completely undermined the case, but it was still troubling. Um, it was still you know information that I hadn't had before, and I didn't know why it was there, uh, and you know I was a little confused by it, but it was also something that I had to account for. It, you know, even though it wouldn't completely change the landscape, it was something that I had to account for when I was assessing the value of the case. Mm-hmm. And so when I was going through it before the mediation with my client. You know, I said to her, you know, the problem is that we got this record about this nerve block injection. Um, and she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, there's this record. You had a nerve block injection, you know, three or four months before your accident. She said, no, I didn't. I said, listen, you know, I, I, I appreciate that you may have forgotten it, but I have a record. It shows that you did. Uh, and she said, I, really, James, I didn't, I didn't have one. I said, okay, so let's go to the record. And we went to the record, and what had happened, and what I had missed, and what uh, the lawyer on the other side had missed, and what a few doctors at a comment had missed, is that while I had the, the last name of the client was right, the first name wasn't, slightly ah. different, and it happened to be my client's mother, who had <sighs> the same family doctor, which is how the records just got mixed up. Sure. And so, you know, that's why, and it didn't make sense on many other levels why it would have been in there and why I hadn't seen it referenced before. And so that really cleared things up. And that was something that the defense uh, was relying on quite heavily in their mediation memo. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out to be completely irrelevant. And it's something that otherwise might easily have been missed, but for, you know, my client being involved in the case um, and, you know, taking an active role and looking through the records 
um, and noting it. Um, and so that's why it's really important um, that our clients are involved. And that's why we take great lengths to make sure that our clients know what is going on. Um, what the case is that we have to meet and what the critical documents are. So it's a good lesson um, if you are involved in a case. It's good to be involved. It's good to ask questions, and you should know what's going on. Well, there's a lot at stake. I mean, it, it, it's for your benefit. I, I couldn't imagine anybody would want to sit back and say, yeah, call me when it's all done. I'll just sit over here and have a Coke. Like, I, I would want to be involved. Well, like listen, would, right? the, the truth, John, is that, you know, everyone's different. Everyone right. has a different level of involvement um, that they want. But if you are involved in a case, you have to at least be interested in what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I certainly don't make a practice of inundating my clients with information that they don't need. But there is information that I need them to know and understand. And, you know, that certainly involves um, the, the strategy of the case and what my general theory is going to be and what the theory right. of the defense is going to be. They need to understand all that. And they need to take a look at it with critical eyes and see if there are any holes that can be poked on either side. And um, they're you know often very good, better than I am at doing it because this is something that they live with. So you know things will make sense or not make sense to them in a way that you know as a lawyer, um, as someone who you know doesn't live with this on a day to day basis, I, I'm not able to do, and they can. So it's very important um, that uh, you know the clients are involved and that they're um, you know given an opportunity. Uh, to look at anything that is going to be critical for the case. Got a uh, couple minutes to go here, James. Give me some details on the injury calculator, would you? Sure. So this is also um, a really interesting piece for what I was talking about before, about communication with our clients. And that's a process that we start right from the beginning. And we, you know, the injury calculator is something that takes away something that is a bit of a mystery um, if you've never been involved in a lawsuit, or even if you, even if you have. If you know, you're not a lawyer, it could be very difficult to understand what your pain and suffering is worth, because what you're doing is you're putting a dollar value essentially on an injury, on the way that your injuries have affected your life. And if you've never done it, if you're not experienced in uh, in law, then you wouldn't know right. what that is going to be valued at. And really, the way it's valued is by looking at what courts have valued at in the past. They look at the factors that are relevant to a particular case and they compare it with other cases. So the age of the person and the particular injuries and the impact that has had are really the factors that are looked at. So what can you do if you've been injured? Well, you don't even have to call us. We would love to talk to you, but if you don't, if you want to just get the information, there is a great tool that you can use. It's injurycalculator.ca. You go on and all you have to do is input some very minimal information. You don't have to identify yourself at all. All you have to do is put in how you were injured, what your injuries are, a couple very small things. It'll take about 20 seconds. And it's going to give you an answer. It'll give you a range of what the value of your case might be for your pain and suffering yeah. based on what the courts have assessed similar claims at in the past. So it, it uses a very large database of all the Canadian cases that have decided these types of awards, and it compares what you input to what the courts have done in the past. And it's important to remember that this isn't the value of your entire case, and it's not an exact number. It's a range mm-hmm. for your pain and suffering. There are likely going to be other parts of your claim if you've been injured, particularly for past and future loss of income and for medical expenses and so forth. But if you're wondering, what is my pain and suffering worth? Well, this is the best place that you can go to in order to get a very quick and easy answer to that question. 
Once you have that answer, if you want to follow up and talk with us, you give us a call. It's very easy. You can submit your information and you can get an email back from us, whatever you prefer. And if you would prefer to stay anonymous, you can do that too. Injurycalculator.ca is that website. Check it out when you got some time. We're going to take a short break here. The number, by the way, one 9646 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Email is where we're going to go after we uh, we come back here. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, one 9646 the number to get a hold of James, and uh, email help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Exactly what Josh used. He writes in, he says, I've had physical jobs all my life as a building contractor, and a few months ago I fell on ice outside a mall, London, Ontario, and broke my right knee. I had surgery and was told that the injury is permanent because of the damage caused. I didn't have any issues with the knee before, but I've had knee replacement on my other knee a couple years ago. I'm 48. I'm afraid now that I won't be able to do the work I've been doing for the past 20 years where I've been uh, earning good money. What should I do about that? I'm owed. Uh, am I owed any money by the owners of the mall where I fell? Uh, if if though was there was there much ice there? Even the security guy came, came over and said that it's pretty icy, and he called someone to put salt on the ground. So... I guess Josh is looking for uh, the next step, right? No pun intended. So, Josh, the the next step is to give us a call and to start a legal claim. Based on what you've put here, it sounds like you have all of the elements that I would be looking for in order to start a legal claim. Uh, There are a few questions that I would want answered, um, some of which you might be able to answer, some of which we would answer for ourselves. Um, But mostly I would want to figure out exactly where you fell because I'd want to make sure that it was privately owned. If it's not privately owned, if it's owned by the city, um, there are different rules. There is um, a 10-day notice period that could be in effect if it's not privately owned. Uh, even even though there is a 10-day limit or sorry notice period, you can still get around that um, in many cases if there's a reasonable excuse for having missed it. And so, you know, even if you've missed that 10-day notice period, which you presumably have, um, we can still send the notice in now, um, and there's a good chance that we would be able to proceed with the claim. But in all likelihood, this is on private property, and that notice period doesn't even matter. So then what we're looking at is who is responsible for this. So you've asked about whether you can bring a claim against the property owner. Certainly you would want to do that, but there also might be other defendants there as well too. Um, Oftentimes the owner of the property, particularly in a mall, isn't the person who is actually operating the business there. Oftentimes that's going to be um, someone who has a lease on the property. And then there may be another company that's hired to do winter maintenance on the area that may not have done a good job or any job at all. So these are three different possible defendants that all could have a certain amount of liability. And you really want as many of them there as possible. The more pockets you have, the more money you're going to get on the table, the, the greater the value of your claim is going to be. So that's how we would approach it. Certainly, uh, based on the injuries that uh, you have told us that you had, um, the the knee injury, um, and that you know you've been a building contractor working in a physical, demanding physical job for a number of years, um, there's going to be a significant value there, particularly um, if you're not uh, going to make a complete recovery. Now, Josh didn't mention anything about taking pictures at the time, but you guys always advise that's a very, very strong thing to do, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, at this point, 
pretty much everybody has a smartphone. Yep. And even if you don't have a smartphone, you know, even the you know somewhat older cellular phones have cameras in them. Even the ones from you know 15 years ago had sure. cameras on them. So take a picture if you can. And if you can't, if for whatever reason you don't have your phone, almost certainly there's going to be someone around you that does. Um, ask them to take a picture and email it to you. And failing that, you know, if you're just in too much pain and agony and you have to go to the hospital, understandable. Your first priority may not be taking a picture. You may not be thinking of that. But if you're listening to this now and something happens to you in the future, then the thing to do is if you're at the hospital and you're thinking, oh, I wish I had taken a picture of it, call your friend, call a family member and say, listen, this just happened. It would be really helpful if you can just go by this precise location and yeah. take a photograph of the area. And it, you know, be as precise as you can because you want to make sure that you're getting a picture of where you fell. And so help whoever it is that's taking the pictures for you. But that can be really useful down the road if and when you start a legal claim to prove that the condition was such that um, it caused you to fall and that there wasn't proper maintenance done in the area. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes, as you mentioned before, I mean, if this is, you know, late winter and by the time it gets through all this and you guys get involved and if it ever gets to the point of being, you know, a, a conversation with an insurance company, it might be May or April. The yeah. ice is not going to be there. It's like, oh, we didn't see any. Where's the ice? Where was the ice? Uh, 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 I got pictures. It doesn't even pictures. have to be, you know, several months down the road. I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, if you've gone through a winter in southern Ontario, you know, you know that the weather can change, you know, day to day yeah. by a matter of 20 or 30 degrees. Yeah. You know, you can have, you know, three or four inches of snow on the ground and then the next day it can pretty much all be gone. And then two days after that, it's back. So, you know, it can change very, very quickly. So you want to move as quickly as you can. Certainly, best case scenario is you're able to take a picture of the area yourself. But if you can't, ask a friend or family member to go do it for you. Well, uh, we'll take a short break here, get to uh, more of your questions and emails. MyDisabilityQuestions.com, that is another website you can use. Ask your questions there. James and Savan answer them right away. There's probably a, a fairly high probability that your question has been asked and a thorough answer is on that website if you haven't touched uh, touched that before. You can do so. Again, email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. And as James uh, mentioned earlier in our last, uh, our last segment, injurycalculator.ca, that is a good place to find out exactly what your pain and suffering the range should be as far as an injury is concerned. There's more to it than that, but it's a good place to start. You can walk away anonymous or there's a contact button at the bottom where you can follow up with James and uh, Savannah as well. The number, of course, one 990 Lots more of the insurance and injury show, uh, law show is on the way. This is Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. That's the number you use. Get a hold of James or Savan. That'll that'll work anytime. Email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. So you're starting a legal claim. Um, how do you determine the value of that LTD case in that regard? It's an interesting question, and it's one that most clients ask um, at some point early on in the process. And typically, my answer is going to be, it depends. What I can almost always do, in fact, what I always am able to do is give the client a very good idea of how the assessment is determined. But usually at the start of a case, there are significant variables that will alter the value of the case um, within a fairly large range of outcomes. And so any lawyer who at the outset of a, of a personal injury case or an LTD case is pegging a very you know targeted value on that claim is usually not being completely forthright. Usually the answer is you know somewhere in a pretty wide range. 
But if we're talking about LTD, these are the factors that I'm going to look at. First and foremost, you want to know what is the value of the monthly benefit. That's something that is, you right. know, that is a known fact. That is something you can look up and determine quite easily. And you know, oftentimes the client's going to know what that is. Um, then we want to know at what stage were they cut off or were they just denied at the outset. That's really important because virtually all long-term disability claims have a change of definition at the two-year mark. And that's something that we talk about frequently on the show. But what that means is after two years of getting your benefits, um, once you can show that you're not able to return to the occupation you had at the time that you became disabled, after those two years of benefits, you're entitled to benefits only if you can't return to any occupation. And so the test becomes harder. And so if we're trying to figure out the value of the claim, Part of it depends on at what stage you were cut off. If you were cut off at that two-year mark, we know that you know the test becomes more difficult after that stage, and so it's a little bit more tenuous. Whereas if it's early on, and if the medicine, you know, if the medical documents show that the injuries are sufficient, that any reasonable person is going to come to the conclusion that you can't return to the job that you had then we know that there's a very strong case up to those two years. And so then it's just a matter of doing some quick math um, and then finding out what the present value is. Um, The present value is really just a way, and I I don't want to bore anyone here, but you slightly discount numbers that would be paid into the future, um, and you, you do that just to account for interest. Um, and inflation. And so, you know, really, it's just a small um, deduction off of what that value would be, but it's not going to be a significant change. So those are the factors that you're going to look at, but really, ultimately, what's going to, what it's going to settle for is going to depend on what condition you're in at the time when you're talking about settlement. And, you know, oftentimes, if we're doing this reasonably quickly, which we typically do, we're looking at trying to resolve the case, um, you know, six, eight, 12 months um, after the client comes to see us. And so if in that period of time, your condition has changed, if you, right. you know, have improved and you're able to go back to work, well, that's obviously going to change the value of your case. On the other hand, if your condition has deteriorated and, you know, now there's no question that you can't go back to work then that's also going to have an impact on your claim as well, going the other way, of course. And so at the outset, I'm not going to tell you specifically what your case is worth, but I'm happy to sit down and go through all of the factors that will um, impact that determination down the road. Get to an email here from Lisa. By the way, it's help at the insurancelawyer.ca. Lisa says, my sister was diagnosed two years ago with severe depression and anxiety disorder. She's 32 and worked in a bank for the past seven years, making a very good salary, over $120,000 with bonuses per year. The insurance company initially paid her short-term disability, and then she was switched to long-term. But earlier this week, she got a letter that said that the insurance company's doctor, highlight that, reviewed the medical documents and determined that she's not disabled from doing her job. This is despite the opinions of my sister's psychologist, whom she sees once a week and has been seeing once a week for the past two years. I'm trying to help her decide her options. Should we get another letter from her psychologist and submit that so that they reconsider her situation? Well, Lisa, you know, I know this isn't your claim. This is your sister's claim that you're talking about. It sounds as though they have cut her off, although you don't say that explicitly. Um, Typically speaking, whenever the insurance company hires another doctor and they say that you're able to go back to work, um, that is almost always followed by 
um, a letter saying that they're denying or yeah. cutting off your benefits. So I presume that's what's happened in this case. And if that is the case, I think what you're asking me is, should I get this, uh, you know, a second opinion from her doctor, her psychologist, um, by way of appeal? And if that's what you're asking, cool. then the simple answer is no, don't appeal. Appealing it is going to be a waste of your time. The appeal is an internal process. It's entirely controlled by the insurance company that has already cut you off and that has um, a motive to cut you off or to cut off your sister um, and to not pay out benefits. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to pay out as little as possible. So, you know, can you go and do that? Sure, but it's not really going to get you anywhere. The thing that's going to get you somewhere is taking it out of their hands and starting a legal claim. Now, within that process getting a, another opinion from the psychologist may be useful, um, but I wouldn't you know, send that in directly to the insurer by way of an appeal. I would use that within the context of a legal claim. So I hope that that answers your question. But on the other hand, I want to address the possibility that they have not yet cut, cut off your sister. Right. If that is the case, if they haven't cut off your sister, then by all means, get another opinion from your psychologist. If you're worried that they're about to cut you off or a family member off, um, you know it, it is always useful to make it as difficult as possible for them to follow through on that. And you do that by complying with any reasonable requests that they're making in terms of assessment or, um, or in terms of rehabilitation and by providing all relevant information, including medical documents that you can. And so while, you know, you, you shouldn't be subjected to unreasonable requests, mm-hmm. getting another opinion from your psychologist may be helpful in those circumstances, although, frankly, it does sound like they've probably cut off Lisa's sister here. So, again, if that is the case and you're talking about an appeal, don't do it. Any information you need, if uh, this has you scratching your head or you just want to talk to James about something else, it's very simple. There's a phone line, one 990 Email, as we just used there, we'll get to some more. On the other side of the break is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. And always you want to find out what your pain and suffering should be, the amount, the range. That is simple to injurycalculator.ca. That is absolutely free to use and completely anonymous. More of the Insurance and Injury Law Show. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Another email coming up very shortly here as we continue on. Uh, in terms of LTD claims, James, when you uh, when you start a legal claim, do you also sometimes claim for anything other than uh, just the benefits that the person's owed? For example, what if the insurance company acted in a, like a bad way for in a you know a particular situation? They were nasty. What can you what can you do in that regard? So what we're talking about here um, are what you may may have heard of as punitive damages. Yeah or exemplary damages or aggravated damages. Um, there, there are subtle legal differences between the three. Um, for our purposes, though, the way you've just described it, John, is fair enough when the insurance company acts in a particularly bad way. That's what we're talking about. Collectively, we call that extra contractual damages. And all that really means is that it's money that's paid over and above what might be owed by the contract, by the policy. And so... It's a good question to ask. It's something that we will frequently put in our claim, uh, and we'll see what's there once we get the file. Sometimes, um, you know, a denial is just a poor exercise of judgment, which isn't necessarily something that is going to attract punitive or exemplary damages. But sometimes it goes beyond that. An insurance company has a duty of good faith. That means that they have to act fairly 
for the policyholders. You know, they have to you know be fair in the exercise of their judgment. They have to be fair in the way um, that they handle the claim in terms of you know the assessments that they ask the person to undergo, um, in terms of the factors that they rely on in in their analysis. Um, they have to have competent people handling the claims. And where we see things in the file that suggests that the insurance company has not fulfilled their their duty to act in good faith, that's where we're looking at these extra contractual damages, these punitive, aggravated, and exemplary damages. There was a recent case where extra contractual damages were found against an insurance company because they they failed to properly consider the medical aspects of the claim. They hired a doctor that appeared to be quite biased in how the doctor assessed that particular person's claim, um, and they relied on factors that weren't particularly relevant um, in denying the person's long-term disability benefits. These are things that we see all the time. And this went to court, and the judge slapped the insurance company. They said, you cannot do that. It's not enough to just say, oh, we got this one wrong. You have to treat all of the policyholders fairly. So yeah, that's something that we will add to the claim. Now, is it something that is going to get paid on a mediation with an insurance company? Well, no. The insurance companies will virtually never, unless it's the most egregious situation and they know for sure that they're done, unless it's that kind of a situation, they're not going to actually agree to pay something for extra contractual damages at a mediation. But that doesn't mean it's not a very useful claim to have made. Because if they know that if they don't settle the case, and the case goes to trial, that there is a risk, a significant risk, that a court is going to find that they have acted badly and they're going to write a public decision that admonishes the actions that they took in that claim, then they're going to want to avoid that. And even if they're not going to say, we're going to pay you X dollars to account for our bad behavior, what it means is they're going to be much more reasonable in how they assess the value of your claim, and particularly you know, how long they're going to pay your future long-term disability benefits for. And where, you know, they might try and get away with maybe four or five years, but for this, um, you know, this extra contractual damages claim, they may pay six or seven in that case, or maybe even more. Um, They will probably never actually agree to call it extra contractual damages or aggravated damages, whatever you want to call it. But they will be much more willing to go further in the event that we can show that they have done something that may well attract, you know, punitive or aggravated damages. Email address simple, help at the uh, insurancelawyer.ca is the one you use. Elizabeth, we'll get to her email here, says, uh, my father fell down slippery stairs outside a dentist's office a few months ago and broke his left knee. He had surgery, and he still has problems walking. He's 62, and at the time was working at Home Depot, but now he can't go back. We told the receptionist at the dental office about this, and we got a call from an adjuster who wants to come by my father's home to take a statement in person. Uh, Should we agree to this? No. No. No, pretty simple. Don't do it. Um, You know, occasionally where there is a very straightforward case, and I've been hired by a client to take on a personal injury claim, and an adjuster will call me and ask for a statement. Occasionally, I'm prepared to do it only where it's something that I know can and should settle very quickly mm-hmm. and it's something that an adjuster might happen. But that is the exception. Far more often than not, I'm just going to say no because during the course of the litigation, the defendant is going to have an opportunity to examine my client and I don't want them on the record twice. 
The only time I'm going to agree to that kind of a, that, to a statement um, at an early stage is if I think it's something that is very straightforward, um, probably worth a, you know, a modest amount because the injuries aren't particularly significant and it's something that can assist in getting a very quick settlement. But that is absolutely an exception. Um, and I certainly wouldn't agree to do that. Um, if you're out there listening, I wouldn't agree to do that without having spoken to a lawyer first. Um, speak to a lawyer first and get get an opinion. By all means, give me a call or spawn a call. Um, we're more than happy to talk to anyone. There's no charge for the consultation, and we're happy to walk you through the options and talk to you about why it's probably not a good idea that yeah. you give a statement um, at an early stage in the proceedings, and particularly without a lawyer. It's just going to put you in a very bad position down the road, especially if you have a claim of significant value. We'll talk a little more about that after a short break in the contact and your more emails as well. By the way, help at the insurance lawyer.ca. You want to send one over? We'll get to that as well. one 990 9646 And it is to find out what the pain and suffering component of your claim should be. That's simple to use as well. You can do it while we take a break and uh, reconvene on the other side. The Insurance and Injury Law Show. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Email address help at the insurance lawyer.ca. Feel free to reach out anytime. Savannah or uh, James will get to your calls and emails as well and answer them. Just before the uh, the break, we were talking about you know an adjuster coming by the house and having a wee conversation with you. It's not that they're going to do anything bad. It's just they're experts, and you might say something that could harm you. Like, oh no, I felt fine before. You didn't mean you felt fine, but it, it's it's as simple as nuance of language, right? Well, that's part of it, but. Don't be so sure that the adjuster isn't going to do something bad either. It's, it, it, I, I'm not saying that every adjuster is a bad person or is right. out to screw you, but they have a job to they do. They got a gig, yeah. And you know their job. You know the way that their performance is assessed is on how much money they're paying out on the claims that they're handling, mm-hmm. and so they have a very specific incentive to try and minimize what your claim is going to be worth. And they do that by getting you to admit to anything that's going to help them. And if you haven't been through this before, and if you don't have the help of an experienced lawyer, you are not going to be aware of all of the things that might be relevant. And another issue is, even if you're aware of what may or may not be relevant, as you alluded to before, John, in your question, part of it is in how you say things. And that's something that I spend a lot of time with my clients on before they are ever Um, before they're ever examined by a doctor or by another lawyer, I want to make sure that they understand exactly how I want them to go about answering questions. I spend, you know, a good hour before any examination with my clients to make sure that they're well prepared and I give them homework that they do between the time that they meet to prepare with me and the time that they're examined. So by the time they're examined, they're well prepared. They know exactly what they're heading into. It's not going to be a mystery to them. They're not going to have any more anxiety than um, is entirely necessary in the circumstances. And so I I try and remove all the mystery for, for them and make it as simple as possible. If you don't have the benefit of that, it's going to be much more difficult for you and you're far more likely to say something that is going to be used against you. And that's what the purpose is. Yep. That's what they want to do. They want to get a statement from you that you're going to sign that has an admission or two or three that is going to be used against you to either defeat or to minimize the value yeah. of your claim. So don't do it. You know, some people are on long-term disability and they're told that at some point there will be a change of definition from quote-unquote total disability in their policies. What does that mean? 
this is what we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. So the first two years that you're eligible to receive benefits, um, the the definition of total disability or disabled or however it's worded in the policy yeah. is based on whether or not you are able to return to the occupation you had at the time you became disabled. After two years, there is a change in definition. And that change in definition is from whether or not you can return to the occupation you had at the time you were disabled to whether or not you can return to any occupation. Now, having said that, um, it's not just a matter of, okay, well, you know, you can be a barista at Starbucks or you can be a telemarketer. Um, There is a case law that suggests very strongly that there is uh, a, a minimum of around 60 to 65 percent of your earnings that is required before a court is going to consider it um, a reasonable substitution. Right. In other words, something, an occupation that you can reasonably have, which is typically about the amount that you would be getting for your LTD benefits anyway. So, you know, thinking about it in that way, roughly speaking, what you're getting for your LTD, if you can't earn that, um, more likely than not, a court is going to find that even at the change of definition, you are still entitled to receive your benefits. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule, but it's something that has been applied in the past. There are some policies that will have specific wording about the level of benefits, or sorry, mm-hmm. the level of income um, that would uh, qualify for the any occupation test. In other words, um, some of them will say 50%, and what that means is if you are able to work in any occupation that pays you at least 50% of the occupation you had at the time you were disabled, then you're not entitled to the benefits. Sometimes it's 60%, sometimes it's 70, but more often than not, it's silent. And when it's silent, the courts typically read into that somewhere between 60 to 65%. So basically you're saying, and I think the, you know, the, the example you've used it before, you get an orthopedic surgeon who uses his hands. He, he has an accident. He's disabled. Under the uh, qualifications, he's not going to be able to be a Walmart greeter, but he maybe he can go and teach if he can't use his hands, something like that, right? Yeah, that's possible. And yeah. it, it's possible that if he were teaching um, you know, medicine um, at, at a medical school, that he might be able to get up to a significant enough income level um, right. that it, it could qualify. That's possible. But you know, obviously, the greater your income is, um, the harder it is for the insurance company to argue that um, you're not entitled to your benefits after that two-year mark, obviously, depending on what your injuries are. A couple of different websites you can use to check things out, ask questions as well. There's MyDisabilityQuestions.com. There's a drop-down menu. There's a space for you to ask your question. It will be answered very quickly by either James or Savan or a member of the team. As we mentioned a few times during the show, you'll want to find out what the pain and suffering component of your claim should be. Now, this is the, is the baseline. There's a range here, and there's lots more to your claim that could possibly be... Uh, be uh, for you to uh, to claim in that regard. That for that you got to either phone James or Savannah. But injurycalculator.ca will give you a baseline for your pain and suffering component of your claim. As James mentioned, uh, I think back in the first segment, it takes like 20, 30 seconds to use. Completely anonymous. You can walk away, or there is a contact button at the bottom of that as well. There's always a phone call. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six still works all these years on a good old phone call. You can make that phone call. We'll get to more of your emails and questions as we continue. Here are the few more moments of the insurance and injury law show. This is Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. 
one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. That's the email address. Email James. Email Savannah. They will get back to you and get your answers and move on from there. Laura writes in, says my brother was cut off long term disability this past week because the insurer said that they performed surveillance that showed him outside a friend's barbecue and shopping for food. Uh, my brother suffers from depression and anxiety as well as PTSD. He was in the military. Can you help him or is he out of luck because of the surveillance? You should know that he has uh, been seeing a psychologist regularly for a few years now who is very supportive. How dare he look for food? <laughs> Sustenance. Right? You know, I, I think you plant these questions at the end of the at the end of the show just to get me going because <laughs> really there, there's nothing that can get me on a rant quicker than asking me about surveillance. Yeah. Um, so what we're talking about here, Laura, and your, with your brother, um, the surveillance as you've described it anyway to me is completely innocuous. Um, you know, showing that he's outside at a barbecue and shopping for food that proves nothing. <laughs> That doesn't prove that he can work. It certainly doesn't prove that he doesn't, uh, you know, that he's not suffering from depression and anxiety or PTSD. Prove that he eats. That's yeah, all proves. <laughs> I, I mean, this is this is absurd. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, nobody who deals in the who is in this field, and certainly no doctor, um, who is going to say that he shouldn't be doing those things as a way of trying to, um, you know, overcome the issues that he's having, as a way of dealing with those issues. Right. You are supposed to go out and. Try try and live your life as best you can, that he has been able to do it in this minimal way does not mean that he isn't suffering or that he's able to go back to work. That's absurd. And arguments like this where an insurance company uses surveillance and tries to make that the basis of a denial in a circumstance like this is exactly the kind of thing that the courts are really hammering them for in extra contractual damages, which is what we were just talking about before. And more often than not, um, even if it doesn't rise to the level of punitive damages, even if it's not bad faith, it's still something that is not going to sit well with the judge. Because almost always what happens here is it's not that, you know, they just went out and they, you know, the moment that the the surveillance investigator started um, doing the surveillance, they saw him at this barbecue. Almost always what happens when I find out about the surveillance, and I always get all of the details from the defense lawyer, um, the lawyer for the insurance company. I always ask them everything that happened in the surveillance. What time did they start? What time did they end? What days were they there for? And invariably what happens is, you know, they're hired for 60, 70, 80 hours and they have like 40 minutes of video. And if, you know, this is what happened here. If they have, you know, even like 30 or 40 hours where the surveillance investigator was sitting around waiting for doing it to do anything. And he's basically just sitting in the house all day, but for, you know, this 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is, that's going to prove your case. You know, the, you know that, that works against the insurance company. That is suggesting that this is someone that just does not go out often, and when they do, they're not doing a whole lot. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if, you know, they have him, you know, running marathons every weekend and going out, you know, deep sea diving and, you know, uh, white water rafting and all kinds and, of things. And all, sure, okay, if you have that, then okay. And if yeah. they, you know, better yet, if they have surveillance of you working, that's obviously pretty damaging. But this kind of surveillance, you know, showing people doing very innocuous things in their day-to-day lives is completely irrelevant, and it works against them. So I love when I see things like that. 
And it's amazing to me how many people are scared just by the word surveillance, where it can actually be used as a benefit. And so when I see something like that, I think, okay, I'm going to use this. And it's something that I'm going to put in my mediation memo when it comes to it. And more often than not, it's something that adds significant value on our end, not on theirs, not on theirs. Yeah, it's, and it's just, you can understand possibly if it's a physical injury, he's supposed to be laid up with two broken legs and he's out barbecuing and walking around shopping. But this is this is anxiety and depression. This stuff can, as you say, that could be therapy for him to get out in public and barbecue and socialize. I mean, it it's almost like they wouldn't want to show you this. Absolutely. I, and it's exactly the type of thing where, you know, I don't know what they could be getting. What they what, what yeah. is their expectation? You know, what is it that they're hoping to get in the surveillance that is going to be useful for them? I don't see what it's likely to be, short of what I had described before of someone who is hyperactive and social. Um, but, you know, anything short of that, it's really either going to be innocuous or something that works against them, as it is here. We've got about a minute to go. Is there, is there things they're not allowed to do with surveillance? They can't harass you. They can't, um, you know, interfere with your day-to-day life. But, you know, as long as they're not, you know, making themselves known, they're not being a nuisance, they're hanging back, um, you know, there really isn't much there um, that you can complain about. But if you're aware that there's someone there, um, by all means, you know, take note of it. Um, If they're doing something that's bothering you, let your lawyer know. um, And certainly you can give us a call if that's the situation. Um, I, I'm going to tell a very quick story here. I had a client who um, had specific issues with um, being persecuted, and he was afraid that there were people that were out to get him that were uh, you know, coming into his house to harm his family. Right. And the insurance company hired a surveillance investigator, and he, he, he saw that they were there, and it freaked him out. As you might imagine, you know, someone suffering from that condition, um, it might do. And the insurance company was aware that he was suffering from these issues and did nothing to notify the surveillance investigator about it. And he called the police. Uh, he didn't know what it was at first, so he called the police on them. And this is something that I was able to use against the insurance company at mediation because what I said to him is, you know, I know that you didn't do anything to tell the investigator to take extra precaution um, to make sure that they're not detected because in these circumstances is something that's actually going to aggravate his condition. And, you know, that put them in a very difficult situation. So, you know, it's something that the insurance companies use far too frequently and can be used very effectively against them. Good for another week, my friend. As we uh, as we wrap it up here, I'll give you some contact information you can use to get a hold of James or Savannah until the uh, the show is around here again. The number is one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Email help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. And as always, you want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be. There's a good range, and it's pretty easy to use. It takes about thirty seconds to do so. Injurycalculator.ca as well. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, six forty Toronto.